Thank you for joining for uh, the Techspective podcast once again. Um, my guest this episode is uh, Sam Curry, who is the CSO of Cyber Reason. So, Sam, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Johnny. Good to be here. Um, we can talk about you know anything uh, at all, but uh, <laughs> one thing one thing that uh, uh, comes to mind, and, and we were you know just kind of talking about this a little bit before we started the the actual recording or whatever but um the idea of uh you know consent i think and privacy like all, all of those things i think are 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 interesting especially given the rollout last week of uh iOS 14.5 and you know there's been this ongoing battle like a uh, you know battle for the, the 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 mind of the consumer for months now between Facebook and Apple about you know, should you allow this? I mean, Facebook has fought very hard to try to keep Apple from from implementing this this new feature that you can basically just turn off all tracking. Um, and in so in the settings in iOS 14.5, uh, you can you can opt to literally just turn off all tracking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything. Ask me. I don't want to hear about it. Or you can do it on like a kind of an app by app basis and say, OK, you know what? You you yes and you know. Um, and you know, and 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 I think it's to, to me, it's been a little bit humorous because I feel I, I've seen some of the stuff that Facebook has put out where they're like trying to make the case for like why this is a good thing, like you should you should let Facebook do the tracking. And I I I see what they like the, I would watch what they're putting out there, and I'd say that doesn't seem like a benefit to me. I, I, I you're oh. you're giving me anything that I can. I don't see any reason why I would want you to track me. Yeah, you know, there's a. I'm reminded of the saying: uh, if something is free, you're the product, right? Right, and 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 I think that we, first of all, collectively, we we undervalue our privacy because we don't tangibly every day see its worth to us. It's like saying saying to someone, you know, what's the value of clean water? Well, you know, when they really think about it, it's everything, or power. It's low in the hierarchy of things, and if they think about it, they perceive it. But higher up in the hierarchy of needs, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. You get to like, well, well, what is it? What's the big deal? If somebody knows what you're doing, and the one that gets me every time is if you got nothing to hide. Why would Why would you? Why would you care if people see it? I'm like, wait a minute. I, I, I've actually spoken publicly on this, and I wrote a paper uh, with a guy named Joe, Joe Marino, who's a wonderful, a wonderful uh, legal mind uh, and a veteran, by the way. And and we wrote about the notion that there's a graph, there's, a, there's an an ur graph. Whether it actually exists, and this is all a simulation or not, is irrelevant. But there's an ultimate graph of how everything is related to everything else. Um, so like, it's like a tinker toy that describes all the relationships among things in the universe. And whoever infers the mapping of those things uh, has got power, economic, military, social. They can manipulate minds. They, 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 I mean, it, it, it is the, if you've ever seen, ever read the book uh, Fast Boys, um, Michael Lewis, if I recall, um, literally nanoseconds in trades made a difference. So getting a fiber optic cable that had covered less space, so the speed of light became less of an influence, so you could trade before somebody else had information, made billions, billions. And it's the same here in having the most accurate and, and have critical mass to understand the, as much of that graph as possible, that tinker toy that, that establishes all the relationships. Now, the question is, who owns that? You exist in this graph, and your relationships are almost a sphere around you of your information. You're creating it continuously, by the way. 
I, I also can't stand when people say, well, it's over. All the privacies are gone. I'm like, no, wait, that, that's not that's not an interesting thing to say. Your older information about you becomes less valuable over time and newer information is being created all the time. So you look at the Apple, you look at Facebook, you look at Google, um, you look at these companies and, and they're building this this kind of information about the universe as we know it. And in the t- bits, parts of it, certainly, that we touch and interact with. So the question is, are, are we being defended by one against the other? Or is one of them creating an, a monopoly and really leveraging its install base? And I would say that in the case of Apple, you're explicitly paying for it, though. Right? So I don't know if there's any jurisprudence here because I'm not a lawyer. But at some point, someone's going to say, you got product for a service or you, got, you know, paid for a product or a service. And at that point, the vendor, the information they had about you was a privilege, not a right. And they had certain responsibilities to treat it. And there's an emerging body of jurisprudence about how that should be treated. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in California. It's happening everywhere. But in the case of free, hmm, it could be argued that the, you have, by default, paid for it with your privacy information. And, and that's a scary notion as well. But I, I, in, in the article with Joe, we talked about uh, extending property rights to privacy. Just like somebody has to pay you for eminent domain or to, to use your property. In theory, if somebody either measures or infers data about you, maybe there's an eminent domain that applies. Maybe. I was going to say, like, I've actually been on, on the other side of the fence of what you were just saying of the sort of like, does privacy even mm-hmm. Anymore and 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 actually a few episodes ago uh, I talked with uh, David Marcus. Do you know David Marcus? Yeah. Um, and we, and we talked about some of these things and I said, yeah, you know, when I hear about a data breach, you know, I, I, I get an email or I see a headline and it says, you know, whatever target's been breached, uh, you know, there's a good chance, you know, your your credit card information or whatever is is has been compromised. My first thought is, okay, but I see that headline or I get that email three four times a year. Like he's getting desensitized, right? That information. Oh, well, I'm like, I'm like, you didn't learn anything new. Like, it's the same credit card. I, you know, like I had. I mean, unless unless I change credit card numbers. But I'm like, but as far as like my social security number or my driver's license number or my address or my email, like all of that kind of personal information, I feel like is has already been commoditized, so to speak, on the dark web. Like that that's been compromised so many times at this point that it's not news to me when you tell me that that's gotten compromised. You know, I came I came home from work one day after a major breach, and I said, to, you know, my wife said, "How was your day?" I said, "Oh, there's this huge breach that happened, and that meant everybody and their dog wanted to know about it, or have an opinion on it, or run it if they were affected, or and a bunch of other stuff." And she said, "A breach? So what?" Because to her mind, they're everyday occurrences. In fact, we even saw a CEO of a company say, "Ah, it's a routine, common thing. Nobody should be alarmed." I'm like, "Whoa!" For me, that's like a doctor saying, "Well, they died, but if I, eventually everybody dies, so you know." Right. But no, no big deal. Right. Um, no, it's a big deal. And, and the desensitization to it isn't OK. Um, the, what's, what's worse is that, that by getting more and more of these, we begin to say, well, it doesn't really affect me. I saw one number. Somebody said 10 billion identities in the U.S. lost. I'm like, man, that is like 40 times the number of people in the U.S. Right. right. So so what does it mean? And I think we've lost some of that. Right. People are going through the motions of disclosure and attestation and what's happening, what was lost and where was it lost? And it, it's lost any personal meaning. Well, and, and you know, the other thing that uh, I was speaking to you up before is, you know, the, the, when I see you know, like experience in the news now and a few years ago, you had the Equifax breach. 
those ones in particular kind of have, have, have annoyed me because at least with target, you know, I am a target customer. I went there by choice. I, you know, used my credit card, whatever, you know, I've, 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 as a consumer entered into that arrangement on, on purpose. Um, you could even argue to some extent with Facebook and Google, like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's written into the EULA anywhere, but you could argue that I entered into that agreement on purpose as well. You know, like I joined Facebook, I, I know what I, you know, I should know what the, what's at risk there in terms of what I'm sharing on Facebook. But when it comes to Equifax and Experian and TransUnion, I feel like I never consciously entered into an arrangement with these companies and yet they have all of this like very sensitive information on, on, on me. And, you know, you know, so I, I have an issue with the entire like credit bureau concept because I'm like, well, who decided you guys get to be the arbiters of what mm -hmm. value is, you know, this is an old idea. Hobbes and Locke used to debate something called the social contract that you have a social contract with the community around you, with the society around you. And usually they thought about this in terms of what are your rights in a, mon in a monarchy and what does it mean in a republic and, and that sort of thing. What does it mean with respect to the emerging de facto powers that be on the internet, right? It, are you in a social contract? Did you choose it? Could you opt out of it? These are, these are really important questions. Um, people do opt out of it, right? They are saying that uh, that's it, I'm out. But are they in some ways now becoming second-class citizens, or maybe better if they're not constantly deluged by social by social media? But these are things that still need to be worked out. And and you know there is a there are explicit contracts you sign into, but at some point, you know there was this wonderful medieval world called word called sub-infudation. Sub You've heard of feudal, right? This is sub-infudation. The feud part has to do with feudal. It was like the the layers of complexity got so deep in some medieval societies. Where somebody owed allegiance to so and so and to so and so and to so and so, and it was split. And it was so many days of the year that if a call to war came, they sometimes didn't know who they were supposed to go and 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 serve. And to some degree, that kind of complexity in the in the de facto social contract uh, means that you signed up for I don't know a phone, a credit card somewhere, and suddenly there are four or five companies that are building dossiers on you, and you can't see it, you don't know it, you don't have control over it. And uh, you're told, well, hey, you entered a contract. It was on page 140 out of the 200, you know, page EULA, uh, EULA, with uh, all caps font, written in passive voice, uh, no punctuation. I mean, it's extremely, you, we didn't read that, right? It was a, do you want this or not, is what it came down to. Right. Well, and, and right, a lot of times that is the, I think, I think a lot of times, for, for people when it comes to contracts of all sorts, EULAs, part of the reason they don't read every word of it is because they've already predetermined up front that this is a thing I want. So I don't really know what you're saying in here and I don't care. <laughs> the bottom yeah. line is this is now a, a, a hurdle or a roadblock between where I'm at and the thing that I've already decided I want. Yeah. Uh well, I wonder if that's not a form of consumerism. Instead of, uh, you know, the old, the old, uh, those, those who choose safety uh, over over liberty deserve neither. Um, I suppose those who those who choose consumerism over both deserve none of the three. Right. Uh, well, that's a that's a pretty harsh. I think consumers should have protection. I think they should have safety and security. And I think I would like to see a world emerge in which one of these big blocks in the information game, then 
the new oil. I'd love to see them say, you know what, we're going to advocate for privacy. We may not get it perfect. We're going to try and do better. Um, and I haven't seen earnest efforts there. I've seen them hire some people and put out some fairly weak plans. But I'd love to see someone take a stand on it. Maybe that's what Apple's going to try to do. I, I don't know. But uh, I think we need to see something that makes these companies stand apart rather than just uh, two similar companies go to battle. Yeah. On a related, Ethically. I, I don't know that it has happened or not happened, but I've I've always held that when push comes to shove, I don't think the EULA would hold up. Like a lot of the, like the, the shady shit that's in a EULA. Like if, if, if it came to it and the company tried to say, uh, well, no, you agreed to this, that if you actually took that to court, I'm pretty sure you could get that tossed and be like, look, I, you can't tell me that I agreed to this fine print on page 53 of your, of your fine print. Like that's bullshit. Look, it's funny you say that. I know we talked about this once before, but this reminds me of, this, of the spyware wars and adware wars. Um, in the mid 2000s that um, I hate the term pup. It drives me nuts. Potentially unwanted programs, nothing potentially unwanted about it. The reason for that terminology is that the major AV vendors were tired of being sued by companies that had a veneer of legitimacy. Right? There used to be a company called 180 Solutions. They had 20 million installs of something called Zango. They claimed it was beneficial for end users, but end users couldn't choose to not install it when they stumbled across it. They couldn't remove it. It had horrible EULAs. They were ex-Microsoft employees. Nothing wrong with Microsoft, but the people who knew the inside of Windows, who had turned to the dark side. And companies were calling this potentially unwanted. They were, so the anti-spyware coalition in the mid-2000s emerged with a set of rules that said, knock it off. But that's not law. And I worry that some of this law will get set in increments. And, and that's how we do things, right? We have precedent. And the precedent can lead to some unexpected places in, bit by bit, unless there's advocacy early on. And, and uh, I, I, I just, I would like to see a simplification of rules for things like consent. Uh, I remember when I was, um, when I was at McAfee years ago, 21 years ago, we ran into the Y2K problem. And I took a stand at that time uh, on the basis that uh, auto renewal was an immoral thing, but a bunch of credit cards were expiring all, expiring all at the same time. And so the company was going to go through a, let's capture it. No one, while we capture it, let's, let's, let's default to auto renew. That's now the standard. I was, I was wrong from a business pr perspective, but when I was faced with this, I thought to myself, people are going to not be aware that a renewal has happened. Out there, we take it for granted that your $50 a year, whatever it is, gets renewed and you find out about it a, a month later and you go, oh, I should have not done that. Well, that, oh, I should have not done that. $50 is a lot of money. Um, but when you add it up, that's a lot of money flowing places that nobody has a right to out there. I'd like to see us rethink, opt out, and to rethink um, this notion that you're signing something away. Something should be clear in plain English. It should not be buried in noise. And you should have to go, yeah, I want it, and like in a way that a human can understand. Not a lawyer, because I don't call my lawyer when I want to install an app. Right. Well, you know, so like the 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 battle that's been going on between Facebook and Apple, because, you know, for Apple, iOS 14.5 just came out. You can just turn off tracking. Facebook knew that was coming and they've been trying to fight against it and trying to sell people on why why they should enable tracking. And. There, too, I'm like, OK, there there are. Potential benefits, there are use cases, uh, you know, and, and and and, you know, I've I've talked about this in, in previous podcasts of, you know, I feel like 
whether it's Apple or Google or Facebook or Amazon or whatever, um, there is a, you know, you, you know that you're giving up some level of privacy and like, especially if you're trying to use like Alexa or Siri or any of those things, like you're, you're giving up something in exchange for the convenience in exchange for the technology. And, you know, and I, and I enter into that arrangement on purpose with Apple. Like I have a higher level of trust with Apple. I'm okay with it. And I understand there's a trade-off there. Um, but like if Facebook actually says, you know, if, if Facebook wants to come to me and to, to get back to the point you just made and and say, listen, you, you should have this tracking enabled. I feel like they should be able to make that case. If you can't clearly make a case where I see the benefit, then then you don't deserve it. Uh, you know, and I, you know, to take it out of a totally different thing, like that's how I feel about a lot of politics too. I'm like, all right, instead of don't do it, don't just tell me what you don't like about what the other guy is proposing or what you don't like about the way things are like, sell me on why your version is better. Yeah. But there's this, I, I'm with you. I'm with you, but I'm trying to think of a, of a suitable analogy and I hope this is not inappropriate, but imagine if somebody came by your house and said, tell you what, I will mow your lawn every week in exchange for being able to walk up to your face and slap you once a week. You'd be like, oh, that kind of stinks. But hey, it's you mow my lawn for free. Okay. So he, he mows the lawn one week, mows the lawn the next week. Then he turns up one week and he says, I didn't slap you last week. So he starts to savagely beat you. And you go, well, like, I consented to this. No. Right. Like, that's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, yes, there is a notion of a contract and you're agreeing to get something and to pay a price. But we don't know sometimes what we're paying for. And you should be able to get out of it and you should be able to back out of it. Nobody, nobody's, you know, this, it's the, you consented to it once. I've got it. I've got it forever. Actually, a friend of mine is um, a privacy architect. I won't say which company who works for a large big data company and, and who provides a very valuable service. Most people use. And this, this company put up a page that was about recruiting for, for blood drive. And on the page, they said uh, that the, the data would be treated privately with respect to your blood type and things because you needed to make the appointment. And he said, and then we had a problem because it turns out we already knew the blood type. We'd figured it out. Our graph, the hive on the back end, we, we already knew what the, whoever it was at the keyboard, we know the blood type of everybody who lives in the country. Because I don't ever have to have recorded it to know it. I can infer it from a bunch of other stuff. And I was like, wow, blood type. He goes, yeah. He goes, so then we thought about not collecting it. But then that just gets weird. Right. Because you're going to turn up and they're going to know it, even though they may not have a relationship with you. So exactly. I said, so so now we've got to accept it. Then we've got to say it's not going to be used elsewhere. Then we got to go and delete it elsewhere and make sure it doesn't get repopulated. He said it was it, he goes, it's it, believe it or not, that's that's a nightmare. Now, that's his biggest problem. His biggest problem is how to how to interact with us in a way that doesn't give away that they know everything about you. Well, wow. I also think that, there, there, you know, it changes over time, too. So like. In 2000, whatever, seven, eight, whenever I first joined Facebook, I might have accepted that contract and said, and said, okay, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you information. I, I expect that you're going to use it in these ways, yada, yada, yada. Well, you fast forward a decade and Facebook's got 2 billion users and there's, you know, just infinite amounts of data that they never anticipated or weren't, mm. you know, it wasn't part of the plan in 2008. 
So now they're doing different things because they can say, okay, well, we've got this massive like data ocean <laughs> to play with. Um, yeah, they're not, they're another company. They there are there are several several companies, many actually more than you'd think, that have the ability to make a have critical mass and be make reasonable inferences about all their relationships in the world and predictions about them. This is this is material things, and people will find more uses. Just like if you have an army, you'll wind up using it. If you have the data, you'll wind up using it. Over time, that's what happens. And there's no there's no real oversight over it right now. Yeah. Certainly none. I mean, like in inference too. Um, uh, a few months ago, or I don't know, at some point in the last year, I. Uh, did an interview with uh, one of the guys from the U.S. Census Bureau, who was like in charge of, of that data. And he talked about how, you know, we, we talked about some of the security challenges of, of the, trying to protect the kind of data that they're gathering. And he said at one point they, they weren't doing much because they sort of thought, well, you know, based on what we're exposing, it's not a big deal. Like, you you know, what, what you can find doesn't is not sensitive. But then someone demonstrated or they, they did an exercise and demonstrated that with the seemingly innocuous information they were exposing, that there were other sources of information that would allow you to connect the dots and then mm. basically build the profile. And so it, it made them rethink about, well, you know, that what they were sharing wasn't as innocuous as they might think. Oh, yeah. Uh, two, two, two fallacies. Number one is if you collect data and you say, well, if I don't take in this class of data, like private, like PII, then I don't have to worry about it. it that's wrong, because if you have enough, you can create PII, which means you can effectively infer exactly the stuff you're talking about having never collected it. There was research out of Carnegie Mellon now, going back many years, that said three pieces of data were required in order to tell everything about you from publicly available information. It was gender, birthday, zip code. And it was over 80% likely. I'm sure it's closer to 100 now. Um, the, the, the number of bits of data you need to reconstitute your record is very small, very, very small. So, uh, the, the, and also simply, simply encrypting or using tokens or anonymizing isn't good enough because when that information leaks, if it adds materially to anything about you, can be used to re-identify. De-identification is not enough to avoid re-identification. It's just a stop mostly for compliance. Um. Side note from that, I, I, I had a conversation at uh, our a couple of years ago, and I, I never did pursue this story, but I had this this thought about when it comes to encrypting data and encrypting, especially like backup data. Mm. You know, so you're a company, you've backed up all of your, your sensitive data. It's sitting somewhere, I don't know, in the cloud, on a tape drive, wherever it is, but it's encrypted. So you're like, all right, it's cool. But I said, but the problem is encryption changes over time. You know, like what? what oh, yeah. you, what you did, you know, the data that you encrypted and put in a closet in 2005 isn't very encrypted anymore. <laughs> no, because our because our the, the, the amount of time to uh, crack it uh, has changed, right? The, that old, the future isn't what it used to be. Well, the time to crack a key of length, say, 768, has dramatically been reduced, right? right. In the case of asymmetric, but even symmetric key, if, if somebody has enough to do a brute force, it takes a lot less. And... We, that could accelerate quite dramatically in the near future. Yeah, so that was just uh, something I wanted to look into to say, you know, like, well, how often do how often do companies go back to their backup data? To oh, <laughs> I, I I joked the other day. I said to a friend of mine, I said, well, the government's got a backup of all my stuff. They're just not very good at the restore part. Um, honestly, I found that it was <laughs> always with backup. So when I was working in the trenches as a network, oh, yeah. ad, we did 
daily backups of critical data. We did like weekly, you know, biweekly backups of like less critical data um, on tape drives. And we had this like, you know, robot tape drive machine that automatically swapped the tapes out for us. Um, and then my, my job was just to collect them. And, and so we had, you know, one version that was always in the tape robot so we could access it quickly. And then another version that we stored off site. So we had all these, all these multi-level backups, you know, trying to do all the quote unquote right things. And then as soon as a, something would happen, someone would like, you know, erase some data that they didn't mean to, or something would crash. And I'd go to restore the backup and find out it didn't fucking work. <laughs> yeah, man. No, I, I, when I was at EMC back in the day, uh, I was stunned to find out how much data was was lost or destroyed, and how much data actually was never uh, restorable or restored when attempted. The point wasn't to ever get it back. The point was to feel okay that it was all safe somewhere. I joked with my brother, by the way, that we the, the other day. I said we might actually be living in an information dark age. He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, most of our data is kept in a volatile form, and there's so much of it that years from now." If, if indexes get this, indices get destroyed, if things get shut off, it'll start to degrade very quickly. Physics is not very, not very kind on things like magnetic disks over time. Uh, a thousand years from now, it could be quite easy to be like, I wonder what they did. I wonder what happened on that day because we don't have the data anymore. And we think we live in an age where everything's recorded. It's all recorded, but not necessarily for a long time. Well, and similar to the encryption thing, there's also just the format thing. So, like, I have like all you know, like a bunch of data. Actually, my, I'll, I'll use my father-in-law. My father-in-law used to do all of his documents, taxes, like everything he did, he did it in Microsoft Works. Mm -hmm. Well, the world moved on. They quit making Microsoft Works. But he's got all like WKS files. <laughs> and he's like, well, what am I supposed to do with these WKS files from, you know, 1990s? There, there's probably a free, a, a free uh, transform uh, application out there. Uh, just, be, just be careful what you upload to anyone, by the way. I mean, but not uh, that not that your old WKS files are going to matter, but don't do anything classified. That would be a bad move. Right? But I yeah, but I find it with like images too. Like you know, it's like you know, image protocols and 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 file formats change over time. Um, and so you know, the JPEG or whatever that you stored in you know that you stored on backup ten years ago, thinking oh yeah, it's you know it's the picture of my you know my kid's fifth birthday. You know I'm gonna I'm gonna go get that. And then you try to get it, and it's like nah, it's 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 either corrupt. Just trying to find it. <laughs> I mean, I, I went I went looking for a picture today to do a project right now because, you know, so like we take tons of photos. She takes photos. I take photos when they when they when they back up off of the off of the iPhone or whatever onto a Windows machine, it puts them in like folders by date, you know, by week or whatever. You know, it'll say like, you know, April this. And I'm like, OK, that's not a good way to find anything. And, you know, so, yeah, it's like we've got you know, probably 60,000 photos in total, but trying to find what you're looking for is a challenge. And, and I've, uh, on more than one occasion, I've, I used to use, um, what was the Google one? Picasso? Mm, yeah. That was pretty good. And then they shuttered it. Like they shutter everything. <laughs> <laughs> so let me get this. So, so people wander around standing their time, not really in the moment taking pictures of it. So later they can enjoy it. And then later they can't look at the pictures. That's a tragedy, isn't it? Yeah. Somebody's onto something here. Yeah. So yeah, because and and for I, I've used uh, Adobe Lightroom a couple times because because at least then you can like go through and you can do the facial recognition. So then I can just say, hey, show me all the pictures of Sam, and it does a pretty good job of finding them. 
Um, you know, you know, you can say, show me all the pictures from a lake and it does a pretty, you know, the AI does a pretty good job of finding lake pictures or whatever. So you can search that way and you can do that. Actually, you can do that in iOS too, or, or Android. I mean, I can just, I can go on my phone right now and say, well, just find me pictures of the beach and it can do that. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of making that more searchable better. Mm. So this all boils down to ransomware is something that can cut you off from all of that right now. It comes along, and I think what most people do is they go through a sense of grief when they get hit by it. It's like, all right, I digitized everything. I've got everything backed up. I've got sensitive things. I've got productivity. I've got kids' pictures. I've got taxes. And lo and behold, it's all cut off from you. Savage. Well, true. And and I feel like there's there's, there's sort of two, like what that means or how that impacts a consumer mm. it, different than what that means or how that impacts a business like it's bad for a business you know to be cut off from critical data that you need to conduct business and 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 suddenly that restore matters yeah right and so so that's bad but on a personal level i feel like it's it's i mean it's just it's way more personal actually it's it's like like you said i mean if it's like let's say someone has digitized all of their family photos and those that's it that those are the family photos. If I don't pay the ransom, I've lost all of my family photos. That's it. Then you gotta think, how much are they worth to me? And am I am I a bad parent for not trying to keep those pictures of my kids? Well, well that got a bit dark, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, and, okay, so, and, 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 you know, people have gotten better, companies for sure have gotten better at saying, okay, well, hey, there's this thing called ransomware, we need to back up more often we need to you know back up and have it off site so it can't be touched by the ransomware mm -hmm. um, all right cool now we're all good if we get hit by ransomware we'll just restore from backup and we're, it's not a problem the attacker said okay we can play that game we're gonna take your data first <laughs> yeah we're going to encrypt it now if you don't give me what i want think of it as an expensive backup service yeah right <laughs> now, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to sell your data or I'm going to expose your data. I'm going to leak it, whatever. And so, again, from a company perspective, you know, uh, you know, the, there have been the two high profile cases in the last month of at least reportedly like you never let you know, there's never any follow through on these stories about like, well, is it absolutely true? And did they pay the ransom? What happened? We don't know. Um, but allegedly uh, Acer was hit with ransomware with a 50 million dollar ransom demand. And then Quanta was hit with ransomware and they were a supplier to oh, yeah. Apple. Apple. Also, you know, Apple has been the main point of that story. Like everyone talks about, you know, it, it essentially is a $50 million ransom demand from Apple, not Quanta. But Quanta also does Microsoft, like Dell. I mean, I, I don't remember the whole list, but like there's a lot of companies with deep pockets. Well, Quanta. The, ba the bad guys, I'm fine calling them that, uh, they're pulled to um, the path of least resistance to most return, right, for least risk. So, in other words, how do I use the tools and services and relationships that I have to find the big pigeons who have to pay with the least chance of getting caught? Well, except some, but that 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 is a simple, you know, basically three variable equation that you can blow out and, and figure stuff out with. But I wrote an article last year about we've seen that there was a Bitcoin ransom demand of 14 million. And I said, what's the ceiling? 
And I wrote it. I wrote it. I said, this is this is a ridiculously high number, but folks, we haven't found the ceiling. And I actually, a few people wrote to me and said, oh, yeah, we have. Yeah, that, no, that it'll never go higher than that. I'll tell you, I don't think it's done going up. Well, I don't know what there, there will be bigger pigeons. There will be bigger pain to go in monotones. I don't know what Acer's liquidity looks like, but last time I checked, I believe Apple was just sitting on like 100 billion in cash. Oh, ransom ransomers have got to be thinking, wow, that should be in my pocket. Well, and and if you're and if you're Apple, you're thinking, okay, fifty million dollars is nothing, you know, to protect our intellectual property, you know, mm -hmm. to, to ensure that this doesn't get leaked. Now, the question is, does it ensure that? You know, so the, the attackers already they are they have the data. You've given them the fifty million dollars, so they don't leak it now. <laughs> but but who's to say they don't turn around next month and sell it on the dark web or or come back mm -hmm. and you again and say, hey, you know what? We still have the data. We'd like another fifty million. Well, nothing is. I mean, um, it's funny. The FBI said said for years you, you shouldn't pay, and then but they do keep track of who follows the their these sort of tacit agreement here. So you can ask them if you are victimized. They'll tell you you shouldn't pay, and there's some that you cannot pay if you, for instance, funding terrorism and things. Um, but they will tell you, you know, these people ninety eight percent of the time they don't come back for more. These ones do, you know, five percent of the time they don't. In other words, ninety five percent of the time they do. Or uh, you can profile them. Now, my bet is that the longer that this is something there's no accountability for, um, the more likely we are generally to see uh, this this double, triple, quadruple jeopardy where they come back for more and more and more and more. So, you know, the the if you if you pay these things, do have a plan for what you're going to do in case it comes around again. Uh, and if you don't, make sure you have a plan what's going to happen when this comes around again. Nobody should be sitting there without a plan right now. Um, and yet I think most folks are like, eh, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I've done the basics. I have backups, you know, and then, and then they get hit. But, but 50 million, I think it's going to go higher. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, like you, you and I've talked before about how, you know, it's once you're compromised, once the ransomware has happened, once, you know, once your data is encrypted or exfiltrated, um, you're in a no-win situation. Like it's it it doesn't really matter if you pay the ransom or you don't pay the ransom. Um, both of those options suck. Mm -hmm. um, and really, what we need to we we need to be better at preventing the ransom encryption in the first place. We need to well, we need to do a few things. First of all, we need to. Uh, I think we need to make sure that you limit the blast radius when it hits. And 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 it, that's a fancy way of saying. Things like segmentation, um, things like um, uh, removing connectivity in your networks and among your data is going to help keep it more localized. That's right. So, but what's that? That's security is asking the business to take pain because connectivity is what the business wants. And so this demands a more mature conversation between security and the business. How, how much connectivity do we want versus how much do we want to limit the ability for this stuff to spread? Then you work on things that reduce the likelihood of it happening, of course, the recoverability after, contingencies, the, uh, like you said, they'll infect your backups, right? And, and, and they'll make sure that on restore stuff gets re-encrypted. So how do, you, how do you make sure that A, you can restore, and B, that you can go back far enough that you're not affected by it? Because they, they can be very patient. In, in the end. But there's more that we can do than that. First of all, um, most of this stuff is there's good prevention technology out there that exists. Uh, and like if people are just sitting there with basic, you know, uh, um, signature checking and polymorphism and a little bit of heuristics, shame on them. There are better ways of preventing 
now. But also, most of this stuff is delivered. Unlike, unlike most criminal malware, which is typically smash and grab, and that's how ransomware was in the beginning, now it's using advanced persistent threat style techniques. It's using the advanced attacker's techniques. They're, you got they're, to filtrate the data so that you can do that. Yeah. So, the, so they're using the techniques developed by the nation states to go, I get into the network, I compromise an ID, I move my thread into the process for an acceptable application, I go over the exact same ports you use between the machines you use, I distribute the payload, and then I simultaneously detonate for maximum effect. And that's what we're seeing. So you, there are ways of stopping those more advanced techniques, things like EDR and MDR tools, for instance, right? And, um, and, and honestly, I think there's a call to do some more innovation here as well. But to simply for people to say, well, you know, I'll just try to patch better and, I'll, and, and I've got all the checkboxes isn't good enough. You've also got to test it. You know, you got you to you do some tabletops. You got to do active recovery testing. Uh, you got to do pen testing. You've got to explicitly do some purple teaming. Pull out the MITRE ATT&CK framework. Go through it. And there, there, are, there are actors in the MITRE ATT&CK library that, that are ransomware gangs. Go pull some of those and see how you do against them in simulation and emulation. Um, but simply to sit there and go, oh, well, you know, there's not much that can be done. That That's not acceptable. Well, and, you know, you mentioned like testing it. I think you know, there's, a, I don't know what the percentages really are, but I feel like a lot of businesses don't actually even have this continuity disaster recovery plan. No, they don't. Or they have a useless document for compliance or something like that. But, and uh, do, I feel like a relatively low percentage ever actually go through the exercise of Test, no, of saying okay, we're going to we're going to run a drill of you know this happened mm-hmm. now let's let's go through the plan, and the first time they use it is when they actually need it, and then you find <laughs> then you find what's broken. That's really it, bad. It says to call Phil. Who's Phil? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't he hasn't know been here I, for six years. Why is that in the document? Uh, um, I, actually, I kid you not. At my last job, that came up. So we had a rapid response mm-hmm. uh, plan. Um, and the rapid response involved contacting certain individuals to initiate the blog and social media and like the communications that we would do for this. And I was doing the, I was doing the blog and doing stuff and, and, uh, you know, I get this email and someone's like, well, you know, are you, are you on this? Or I'm like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) We implemented this rapid response. I'm like, okay, again, didn't come to me. And they're like, the, and so they sent me the link to the document of that defined what the rapid response was. And I'm like on like the third or fourth level of this chain. And I'm like, every person above me on this chain no longer works for this company. Wow. <laughs> you know, and I was like, no wonder I didn't get the email. I was like, That's spectacular. The, yeah, if, if the only three times that somebody sees the policy is in the annual required review as part of the awareness training, and then as part of an audit, that's a fail, right? I mean, so when I'm when it's my turn in the barrel and I'm, I'm the incident captain because we have a rotation, right, internally, and me and some of my, my managers and directors. When it's my turn in the barrel, the first thing I do is open up a, a simple description. It's a what do you do first? It's a triage. It's a classification. It's a who's on call. It's a convene. It's a set up this channel for comms and call this person for forensics. And you know, this is used in December alone. I used it five times. Uh, you know, Solar Winds comes out. We weren't affected by it, but I still got to go look. Right? You know, Half Neum comes out. We weren't affected by it. I still got to go look. We're not customers of FireEye. FireEye got busted. And kudos to them, by the way. 
you know, for all that they may be a competitor of my company in some ways, kudos to them for putting up on Git actual usable stuff to go find things. Because now I can take it and I can go hunt and I can and I can run the incident. Um, but incident response, disaster recovery, business continuity, this stuff's not a joke. It needs to be actively tested like a, and it needs to be used like a muscle. Well, and, and it, it's funny too, like you need other eyeballs. You need, because every once in a while you need someone else to look at it, I think, and because you need to be able to think. Every of, time. I'll it, go so far and say every time. I don't care if you're writing a policy or looking at a process or writing a paper or coding, you get better with, with, with more eyes. So here's here's an anecdote. I don't I don't know if this is true. It sounds like something that could be true. <laughs> That's good enough. That's good enough. But, 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 uh, you know, there are there are like the disaster, uh, you know, apocalypse preppers. You know, they they've stockpiled all the canned goods in their basement. They are ready for when the zombie apocalypse comes. Nice. Um, they've got their you know, got they got their firearms. Their you know whatever they've thought of all of the things. Well, supposedly there was you know, there's a, 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 a this was like. Someone shared this story about like their cousin or their brother-in-law. So when when the frost, when the freeze hit Texas, you know, and we had we had no power for like a week and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. And. Some people were like, oh, well, the, you know, it finally finally time for all those all, all, all those preppers to, you know, it pays off. You know, they're 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 ready. Well, <laughs> there was the story of someone who they had all these canned goods. But they only had an electric can opener, <laughs> and it didn't occur to them that as part of this, you know, apocalyptic uh, scenario that they might lose power. It's hard to open a can with an M16 and, and really <laughs> enjoy it. Actually, I just did they have anything to heat the beans with, or was it cold beans for the rest of the apocalypse? I think it would have been cold beans too. I think because basically they, they had it had occurred to them they might not have electricity, but their backup generator their backup source was natural gas hmm. and in the freeze oh yeah because you know have the electricity is because we didn't have the natural gas right yeah <laughs> and you know so so they lost all of who, the who doesn't plan for complete isolation and and remember that the grid goes away hmm. how about that anyway yeah so i thought that was funny where i was like yeah you need to you, you needed you needed someone to come in and look at that and go well what are you going to do if you lose that too yeah yeah, and and to practice it, uh, don't recommend shutting off your own gas. FYI, uh, I, I live I, I live in 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 area that had a very bad gas incident a few years ago, and when a, when three cities lose natural gas, it's a big deal, and turning it back on is non-trivial. So yeah, folks, don't go and do that one. Call the gas company if you're going to test it. Um, all right. Well, I I wanted to. Uh kind of start to wind down I, I, kind of two two un unrelated questions for you number one is sure uh are you a are you a reader i'm a big reader yeah um so my question is you know like what are you reading now or what would you recommend like if you had to pick a book you were going to give to someone um so right now i'm just started yesterday an audiobook um because i when i drive around i'm trying to drive around again more um, it's Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, Bomber Mafia, and I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. I'm only a little bit through, uh, it's pretty good. Uh, I'm also rereading. I like, um, I like non-thick usually in an audiobook form, but not always. Um, uh, and, um, I usually like thick in a reading form. So I don't know if you know Lois McMaster Bujold. I'm rereading uh, a book called Curse of Chalion, which is a fantasy novel. 
Um, I'm thinking about diving, trying to read The Silmarillion. I was never very good with that one. Um, what's a good one? Let me, uh, let me know if you do it. You know, like, okay, I read The Hobbit. I've read The Hobbit probably seven times all, all the way through. So I've read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. The Hobbit, the Hobbit was, it was relatively simple but fun. Well, Lord of the Rings... The Hobbit uh, was... Lord, you know. the, Lord of the Rings I got through once. But hmm. The Hobbit is such an easy read for me. And then and then I was like, well, I'll try the Silmarillion. And I picked that up. I'm like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> I got fasti- fascinated recently with the notion of... Uh, I'm not a Christian, but with of the Gnostic Christians and sort of like the, the Gospel of Judas and uh, the, the the Gospel of the Infancy of Jesus, Thomas's one. And so I started to read some of that stuff. But I did read a good... I loved Red Storm Rising years ago by Tom Clancy. came out soon after Hunt for Red October. Mm-hmm. And I read uh, 2034 recently, which was about a, a third world war between the U.S. and China. Uh, and, and, and there's a bit of a MacGuffin in it around cyber, but the, the premise is that the cyber supremacy is achieved by China and it actually has kinetic effects and what follows from that. And so it's it's a it was a pretty good read. What are you reading right now? Um, a couple things. So there's a, a book called Range. Uh, I, to, uh, I don't remember the author off the top of my head, but the idea is looking at does it, you know, it, it's comparing. Does it make more sense to do the, the, the Tiger Woods 10,000 hours of uh, focused practice to become an expert on the thing? Or is it better to be a generalist across a wide number of things? And the, the premise of the book is that it's better to be a generalist. I would it, go with that, too, by the way. It, it starts off with uh, comparing like Tiger Woods and Roger Federer and you know, how you know Tiger Woods from like 18 months old his dad put a golf club in his hand and that and that's what it, he he was a golfer and there was no choice that's what he was and they said Roger Federer did a whole bunch of things and it wasn't until he was like a senior in high school that he was like yeah I think I'll play tennis you know and nice. and, and they said you know it, you, you, there are there are pros and cons to both but you know the research seems to support that it it is better overall I've be- heard the research on the 10,000 hours thing is actually a little shaky. Um, but uh, I, I heard the same thing in the context of work. I, there was a, an HBR article years ago that said, if you want to get ahead, go sideways. In other words, get really good at many multiple things, become a renaissance person. And that this is the best way to achieve high, high, high sort of rank or office or responsibility and hold on to it. Yeah. And then the other, uh, so I, I always have like a couple of different things going on at, at a time. So I'm also reading uh, Barack Obama's latest book. Oh, is it I, good? It is good. And I, but I said to my wife the other day, I'm like, I'm assuming he just keeps, like he journals on a daily basis or something. Because he's, you know, he's, he's talking about, you know, when he was running for state senator in Illinois and when he decided to run for president and and, and relaying the, 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 the stories. And it would be like, you know. You know, I had I had a meeting, uh, a, a, a lunch meeting with uh, a gentleman by the name of Sam. He came in. He was wearing a, you know, dark blue hoodie and a blue tee, like the, the level of detail. And I'm like, OK, I couldn't mm. tell you who the hell I met with last week. And you're writing a book about a meeting you had 10 years ago. I don't, I don't really remember what I had for breakfast. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm like, either you journaled the hell out of your life <laughs> details, or you're making shit up. But <laughs> either way, I'll take the story, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a good story either, either way. So you no, said you had two questions. Though. What was the other one? 
Um, the other one was just, uh, and I know you, know you, you, you have your own podcast, you've been on podcasts, you've done interviews. Um, mm. so this might be a, might be an impossibility, but I was curious if there's, uh, something about you that most people don't know. Whew. Uh, yeah, that's hard. Um, aside from me being absolutely charming and good looking and all the last right. Um, I think was that. This, is all, this is all audio. I have, I have a face for radio for those who are listening. Uh, don't know about me. Well, um, there's a lot I think people don't know, but uh, I'm doing a, a graduate degree right now. I'm doing a master's in counterterrorism. People might not, not be aware of that. Um, I speak more than one language. I've always been a big fan, fan of linguistics as a personal hobby. I try to, I try to get accents right when I speak to people um, in their language instead of just sounding, you know. What other, like, what other uh, language do you know or how, what languages? Um, well, uh, French fluently and Spanish, and I and I uh, I can certainly read and write class some classical languages, Latin and Greek. Um, I I grew up as a child speaking Arabic, so some people might not know that when I was a child I lived in Morocco. Uh, my father was a foreign service over there. Uh, they also may not know the government he did it for. It was the Canadian government, so uh, and and the British government at the time. So there's a few things. Is there anything interesting? I used to play semi-pro rugby. I think some folks know that we played for Canada. Uh, many many moons ago. Um, anything else? I was struck by lightning, which I think my brother outed me. We did it. My brother's name is Red Curry. That's his actual name, so he can't go to like Thai restaurants and stuff. They don't believe him. Uh, his name Red is short for Redverse, which is an old family name. And um, we did a reverse interview. He came onto my podcast and interviewed me. So kind of like you're doing right now. But uh, he 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 got down and personal. So hopefully, if that recording is out there, hopefully people enjoy it. All right. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I, we we kind of went all over the place, which I, which I, honestly I think is good. You know, like I, I don't mind that. You know, I, I listen to, uh, uh, like, I listen to a, a lot of different podcasts, but you know, one of the ones I listen to uh, regularly is Tim Ferriss, and his podcasts mm. are two hours long. You know, yeah, one guy talking about one subject. I mean, they veer off a little bit, but I mean, it, it is it is it is a, a very lengthy podcast. Talking it's the ten thousand errors approach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't, I don't mind the bouncing around op, uh, version. Cool. 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 Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. All right. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.